You're listening to TFM. Want to join in the conversation and share your thoughts on this episode? Join the Babel Conference, our listeners' discussion group on Facebook. Just type B-A-B-E-L into the Facebook search field, and we'll look forward to seeing you there. Hey, everyone. I'm Rod Roddenberry, and you're listening to Trek FM. some light reading in case i got bored hello and welcome to tfm's local books and comic show for star trek and i'm just one of the hosts here matthew rushing so excited to have back with me casey bettit how are you casey i am great it's always good to be back talking more star trek specifically the books yes yes and you know i just um I love being in the TOS movie era because, you know, just the thought of all the characters walking around in their monster maroons, it just makes me happy. And, Especially uh, when the author points it out to us. Exactly. It really exactly. sets the setting yeah. for us. You know, when Kirk accidentally puts it on backwards, it's really <laughs> awkward. Um, <laughs> yes. And, of course, you know, you got the refit Enterprise, which is, in my opinion, the best Enterprise. It's the most beautiful. Um, although I will say the A is probably my favorite because internally I like the design work of that the best. I'd agree um, with that. Yes. Yeah. So just just phenomenal. But you know, uh, one of the sad things though uh, of being here today is is that we don't actually really have any news items because there's no comics that have come out, no book news because well they they we know what books are coming out and that doesn't start till later on this year. But Casey, uh, before we dive into uh, talking about our features, probably a good idea to let everybody know, you know, you can find us, of course, wherever you get your podcasts, which, you know, you probably know because you're listening to this show, but we'd appreciate it if you're subscribed so you'll get the show as soon as it drops. And if you're in a place like Spotify or Apple Podcasts, please uh, give us a star rating and a review. Those That really helps people find the show. Of course, you can find us on Twitter at Trek FM. We're on Instagram at Trek FM. We're on Facebook at facebook.com slash Trek FM. You can also find the listeners only discussion group called the Babel Conference and talk to listeners from all over the world about the shows that are going on here. And of course, we've got the website at Trek FM as well. And then you can also help out the network over on Patreon, which is a fantastic thing to do. In fact, Casey is one of our associate producers here, along with Greg Rosier, for not only literary treks, but the entire network. And, you know, it costs a lot of money to put this many podcasts out a week, and we could definitely use your help. It's been a very difficult few years for us here at Trek FM. So go to patreon.com slash Trek FM and see how you can be part of the team. But Casey, with all that said, I don't know, maybe it's time for us to uh, try and aim for the bullseye with that flame and arrow. Well, Casey, we are back uh, and the New Earth series, as we were kind of mentioning there uh, in our not quite news segment, because, well, <laughs> as we said, no news. Um but I, one of the things I actually wanted to get your opinion about was the way that this follows up the previous book. Because one of the things that we mentioned uh, with the previous book is just kind of 
Rough Trails was very rough. Mm-hmm. It was very kind of bleak in the way it per- painted what uh, Beltaire had become after what happens with the Quake Moon and it, you know, destroying basically half the planet, you know. Um, and it was interesting because I'm not quite sure that uh, what. I don't know. How do you feel like this follows it up? Because it seemed like things weren't as bad as they were then, which is great, but I'm not quite sure I totally have a sense of like maybe time passing or something. I don't know. What what did you feel? Yeah, that's kind of where I was thinking is that the, that the time that's passed has still been uh, kind of murky, I guess. And this, this book actually specified that they've been... Um, on Beltaire for, I think, a little over a year at this point. But the timeline is just really hard to to pin down. Um, yeah, like you said, the, the last book was really showing this kind of bleak wilderness that they were living in, this kind of, um, you know, I was picturing things, you know, like they're in the middle of a desert and, you know, they got these sandstorms and, and just these horrible weather patterns. Um the only kind of really way that this book addressed it, I felt, was just the the, the big muddy or um, I can't even remember what that settlement was called, but but basically where the rivers and the floodplain had flooded after the crater wall had uh, fallen in the last one, and they were trying to recover from that. Um, you know, even at one point in this book, Kirk uh, and um, one of the colonists is flying in an airplane, you know, surveying some of this damage. Um, but ultimately it, it, yeah, it kind of felt like the main colony that we spent our time on was, yeah, just kind of business as usual. Like, you know, they kind of barely mentioned some of the odd weather patterns, but it, yeah, it just didn't really seem so bad, which then I guess just made me think that, well, maybe in rough trails, we were just seeing some of the, um, outlying territories or something, but it, it really especially getting into this book, it really kind of sheds light on how kind of disjointed and um, I don't want to say unplanned. I don't know if it was unplanned or not, but like it, it, it just, the tones of each of these books are so different. You know, like we had the really bleak one last time. It's kind of better this time, you know, book two, when they actually got to Beltaire again, didn't seem so bad, you know, to where rough trails really kind of just seemed kind of the odd one out, you know, being, put in between a couple of these books. So, you know, yeah, it's, it's kind of, sometimes I'm wondering, are are we all on the same planet, you know, or, or, (laughs) you know, we're, did somebody else get a different outline, a different version of the story? (laughs) Like, uh, wait, is this the right planet? Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) It's like, it is interesting that you say that because this did almost feel more aligned in tone with what we got in Beltaire. And so um that was that was really an interesting thing. And I, I think I think one of the things you know I, I think you've said this a few times now as we've been walking through the series, which was this is a thing to which I feel like we needed time stamped, time stamped how much time has passed 
so that we had an idea. And I think that would actually really help. Yeah. And that was actually, and that was kind of, you know, that's what Beltaire did, the book Beltaire did. And actually, even this one, I, I made a note at some point where towards, kind of towards the end of the book, when we're really getting into the the real action, um, you know, it says, uh, oh, it was uh, when the the called, the Kauld or whatever they're called, um, the, the enemy fleet, um, I think it was Velengaith was the character that said, we have 10 days to prepare on, on day 11, Beltair and it's Olivia moon will be ours. And I'm just glad at that point in the book, which was in the first, I don't know, third of the book. Um, it actually kind of gave us that countdown. Okay. We know that whatever is about to happen is happening over a 10 day period. And, um, I, I, I just feel that that kind of ramps up the intensity rather than in, in rogue or in, um, uh, rough trails where it was just this kind of ambiguous amount of time that uh, actually it wasn't that ambiguous. I think they actually said at some point that it was like months that, you know, Sulu and Chekhov and all them were, you know, kind of out in the frontier. Um, and yeah, I agree. We uh, either getting a timestamp or, you know, almost like if they had said, okay, the day we landed on Belter was day zero. And we're going to start counting our own, like basically invent our own calendar so that we could kind of follow along with that. Um, just because some of the stuff that's happened, it seems like, you know, in this book, they said it's only been a year. But they've also got colonies that have, and I said this, I think, even in um, in Rough Trails, they've got settlements that have already been abandoned. And now we've got, you know, this floodplain that's flooded and destroyed a whole bunch. I mean, this has been a like a really bad year for everybody. That's, I mean, it was interesting just because this book, I think, you know, we, we're going to deal with one more thing, you know, that, that's mm -hmm. going wrong. And, and yeah, I mean, it does, it really makes me wonder, I would, I would love to kind of know what the behind the scenes was like in planning this series. You know, I, I know, uh, obviously as the writers now if they're in a series, you know, they're getting together and talking together and sharing back and forth. And, you know, if David Mack's involved, he's creating ridiculous amounts of uh, an amazing <laughs> amounts of, uh, you know, Excel files and that kind of stuff. Um, so I think um, it, it this is probably a much different time, you know, uh, and so I, I think th that's one of the reasons why things probably do feel a little bit different. Um, but yeah, I mean, if rough trails was tough for you to get through because of it, it feeling a, a lot more bleak, I think this book definitely alleviated that problem okay. probably for most of the readers, because this is absolutely another, uh, this is absolutely kind of the opposite of that, right? This felt like very much the classic Star Trek thing where like, oh, we've got a problem Let's science it. Mm -hmm. uh, and so, which I guess kind of brings me to that new threat that we face, which is the Claude have this two-step plan. Um, they are creating a massive olivium laser based on a comet yep. <laughs> that they have shaved off enough of with 
to create a pocket of carbon dioxide that the laser will then be aimed at the planet and will arrive at the same time as the carbon dioxide and basically incinerate and destroy the planet, yes. leaving them the olivium left over and what's left of the moon, the quake moon. Did I get that right? I think so. Um, it was quite the convoluted plan. Um, and it kind of reminded me a little bit more of just how big this threat was of the threat in the novel of Belterre with the quake moon and, and everything. And just this like what seems like an insurmountable problem to solve. But it was really, um, no, I, th I think you summed it up pretty succinctly because it was, like I said, it was fairly convoluted. Um, because, yeah, like, I, it didn't occur to me until you were just saying that, that the they needed the stuff that they shaved off to interact with the laser to turn into the carbon dioxide to do the havoc that they're trying to wreak. <laughs> um, but, yeah, it just basically, it, it, as I was going through it and reading through it, it, it felt real or it felt like it could be real like it's this massive thing but it kind of felt like it could be grounded in science i don't know if it is or not um you, you know as far as uh how this laser worked or um i mean obviously the olivium part is made up but um you know how ab absolutely massive it had to be and how it was brighter than a sun uh you know to where their their polar or their um solar filters couldn't even filter out the sun the light and um it just it felt enough sciency to make it a huge star trek threat that we would see to where this could be something you would see in one of the films or something not quite big enough it's not galaxy destroying like you'd see in any of the new series or anything like that but uh big enough that it, you know this could be a good story for the big screen yeah i mean one of the things that was one of the things I think that works about the story is that it does feel very Star Trek and like it's it's it feels like a lot of techno babble mm -hmm. about lasers and transmuting things because of these new type of sensors that Spock's been trying to create because of Gamma Knight and all of that type of stuff and I think it works though you know, I, I think for the most part, it actually works as a story. And I think it when it, it comes to following up the previous book, I think you needed something like this to, to be a little bit. I don't I don't mean lighthearted, but it's kind of how it feels. It feels much more. It's dire. But it feels like a Star Trek episode where it's like by the end of the book, we're going to figure it out right. and everything's going to be fine. Um, cause obviously this series wouldn't continue <laughs> as a new earth series if we just let it go. And so I think that this book really helped because, it, and it made sense that you would follow it up differently and kind of make it feel more like that classic Star Trek episode, um, where things are going to be okay at the end. And of course, you know, the series we know that's going to go on, so they're not going to be leaving Beltaire. Um, and I, I think it's interesting as well because, you know, this is book four, kind of position them into a place where things look like they could get better. 
um, you know, in the sense that like things could continually get better as we move forward instead of like progressively get worse. So that's nice too. I think, you know, we're, we're being in the middle of the series helps in that way. Mm-hmm. Um, so yeah, I think that was, that was good. Um, I, it did feel slightly crazy. Yeah. The idea that this would be the case, like how this is all going to play out and just what it is like this special laser fueled by the olivium that's crazy and, and, and uh, yeah. So, um, yeah, I, I don't know what it did. Did, did it feel over the top or crazy to you or did it work? It's yes, <laughs> both. It's, um, it was over the top, which is kind of what we've had this whole series so far. Um, you know, they even teased the idea in this one, maybe that they needed to move the entire, or like stop the planet's orbit for just enough time to let the laser go by. And I was thinking if they take it that direction, we will totally jump the shark. Um, but kind of, again, when you come back to, you know, whether or not this is grounded in science, like they came up with a techie, uh, solution to it as far as like realizing that they could essentially cancel out the, um, the light beam, um, even if just for a fraction of a second or whatever, like, you know, long enough for it to pass essentially through the planet. And the, the part that, you know, the, the, <laughs> that I just felt was kind of typical, I guess, for this book, there was two parts actually. Uh, the first was just that they needed every ship that they had left to be able to um, make this plan work, which is exactly what happened in Beltaire. It's exactly kind of, Obviously, you know, happened in the first book when they're trying to get there. But, um, you know, it's just like, yeah, when they when they said, how many ships do we need? All of them. Yeah, it's typical. OK, you know, um, the the other thing is I'm, I'm getting kind of tired of the uh, governor in this, too, because he, you know, Kirk basically was giving him he calls him just to say, hey, this is kind of what's going down and we need to do this. Uh, and so don't evacuate the planet. And of course, the governor flies off the handle and Kirk kind of does some reverse psychology on him to make him make the governor think that the whole crazy plan was his idea. But, um, you know, once again, it's like, we've got this insane, um, kind of weapon. We've got this insane plan to, uh, to, to stop it. And then we've got the governor kind of coming in going, I don't want to do that. That's stupid. I just want to save my people, but I also want to have the planet and I don't want Starfleet involved, but I do want Starfleet involved because you're right. And so just the whole, the whole plot of it, it was like, yeah, it's over the top, but it's also just kind of on par for what this entire colony has been going through ever since they got there. So I didn't, it, it felt, it felt right for me. It didn't bug me at all. It didn't, um, I wasn't rolling my eyes at any point because it was just like, yeah, this is just kind of how it is at this point, I guess. Yeah, no, I think that's a great, like everything you pulled out there is a hundred percent what I was thinking. Like just the way in which, you know, we've kind of seen meant much of this before and it does feel very familiar. Um, and so, yeah, I think that's something that's, um, it's like, eh, okay. Um, 
there were a lot of like it's like this series has created its own set of tropes mm-hmm. that it likes to use and so yeah that was i think those were the downsides to it so absolutely I th- I, it's one of those things where i feel like this new threat just kind of was a mixed bag um there were some really fun things about it you know it felt really like classic star trek and all that stuff and then there were some things that were like Oh, I just feel like we keep kind of doing this in the series, which is a little bit frustrating. So, yeah. you know, um, you know, one of the things that we did in this book, though, is that we, you know, gave uh, we gave Kirk a little romance uh, with Lillian Coates. And uh, how did you feel like that worked? This is a good example of not having enough time with her. We had her like, you know, Kirk. Kirk kind of got to know her in, I guess, a little bit of the first book when her husband died, but really in that mm-hmm. second book when they got to the colony and, you know, of course it's her because her son was one of the ones that stayed behind when they were needed to evacuate the planet the first time. Um, but I I feel like because we had rough trails in there and no Kirk or, or Lillian Coates in that one, um, it did kind of feel like it came out of left field a little bit just because we haven't had time to develop that relationship. I almost feel like if this one came on the tail of, uh, of Beltaire, like if, if this was the third instead of the fourth book of the season of the series, it might've felt a little bit more natural. We're a year into this, uh, settlement or this colony and he's just now doing this. I mean, it feels like something that would have happened a little bit earlier on kind of after the first, um, danger that they were in rather than i don't know like i just didn't get the feeling that they've been developing this off screen as it were or off the page (laughs) before we got to to this point of the story yeah yeah no i it was it was something that which i think um i wish there just i didn't feel like there'd been a ton of development and just in the other books, really. Like, yeah. there was that moment where he was standing on the beach, you know, and, oh, yeah. you know, she had the kids and everything. And it's like, but I just didn't feel like there were, like, I felt more like there were moments between her and McCoy more often than there were Kirk and her. And maybe I'm just misremembering. And I, I mean, I don't, like, I don't have um, an issue with, you know, Kirk having the romance, but I almost just felt like too, like McCoy seemed to have created this relationship with her that might move in that direction. But maybe they thought because he's kind of playing almost like a doctor role to her, they didn't want to go there. And so it would be, you know, Kirk that she would gravitate towards. And I mean, who doesn't gravitate towards Kirk? So, (laughs) well, and I'm, I'm glad you said that because I was, I did have that feeling while reading this like i mean mccoy did seem a little jealous but he had that kind of like star trek six like what is it with you mm-hmm. in here and i mean i think mccoy even had a thought at some point i need to ask him about that sometime which we all know is going to happen in star trek six when um uh iman whatever her character's name was yep. in that movie um and but yeah, like I had that feeling too when all this was starting up and then McCoy, I don't know, there was just something about him just seemed kind of jealous or or something that, yeah, I felt like, well, yeah, he's been developing this friendship anyway with her and that's, that seemed like it would have been a little bit more of a natural fit and why not give McCoy, uh, you know, the romance 
for yeah. months. Although, and, and he even yeah. mentioned at some point that he was like still kind of recovering from his previous divorce mm-hmm. and, you know, yep. it could be nice to see him get, you know, uh, yeah. get closer to someone like that. Absolutely. Uh, so, and, and, you know, I, what I th- thought was interesting about it was the fact that Kirk, um, kind of seems to be in a place where he wouldn't mind having a relationship. Mm-hmm. She seems to be in that place, but it. But at the same time, like it's it's almost like she knows she's getting over someone, so she's not necessarily looking for anything like super serious or anything. So, yeah, all that was just really interesting. Um, and I mean, I it's fine. Like yeah. it, it it wasn't bad or terrible. I mean, it was. I I thought it was you know um, pretty chaste in the way it's written. You know, it, and, and all that kind of stuff. So I didn't have any issues with any of that. Um, it did just seem like it it came out of a place where um it wasn't as no it wasn't a thing to which i was like oh yeah this has been building up this whole time and finally they're you know going that direction um yeah. which is a little bit strange uh yeah. to to kind of see so um no absolutely um so with this book, um, you know, one of the things that uh, we do as well is we do allow um, for them to continue to kind of make some friends. Uh, and their blood and in, in that, I don't mean like their blood relative, but, you know, <laughs> the, the, the alien species, the blood, and I put it kind of in quotes because we're not still not quite sure. If they're friends or not, Shakornan, I think that's how you say his name. Shakorian. Uh, Shakorian, yeah, that's it. Um, <laughs> he comes through for them in not only helping them with building materials, because they've lost so many of the building materials that the planet once had as resource, mm-hmm. um, but arriving in warships to help fend off the Claude fleet. And so, um, do you feel like, how did you feel like, did that seem earned and does it feel like this should the the series is maybe taking a stepping stone towards things progressing in this area instead of just kind of feeling like oh there's another moment where like something really bad happens so yeah and it it kind of flies a little bit in the face of oh we don't pick sides and others wars um but from early on yeah (laughs) We're still not totally sure if Shakurian and the blood are friends or not because I've, I've, if I remember correctly, early on, like kind of the way it seemed a little um, like Shakurian was almost planting seeds for deception for later in early books as far as like trying to befriend Starfleet and and uh, the Beltair colony just, you know, to get at the Olivium for the blood or whatever, but... This book, I feel like, further solidified that maybe he is trying to become friends. Um, you know, it's definitely a business deal for him, as he says, you know, with helping with the building materials um, and, and other supplies that they needed. But um, they could have easily sat on the sidelines and watched Starfleet and the Claude Fleet fight and just see kind of who came out on top. But at the same time, when 
it's kind of their war and they're seeing Starfleet fighting against them for them to jump in and basically risk themselves to help fend off the other fleet. Um, even if it's a kind of a trick, which I still kind of have this inkling that maybe it is kind of a trick that the blood actually aren't maybe our friends. Um, this went a long way to saying that maybe they are friends. So, um, mm-hmm. it, it did seem kind of on par, especially for the blood and, and for Shakurian who even says like, Hey, you know, yep. if, you know, we saw you fighting them and we're not gonna, we're not gonna, um, you know, pass off a time to get in a fight with them either. So, you know, I, I hope it's leading towards, uh, friendship. I'm, I'm, uh, cautiously optimistic, I guess about that. I was thinking the same thing that this felt like finally a movement towards uh, solidifying whether or not these characters are going to be good characters or not good characters basically for us uh, to be involved with or that they're going to turn on us. And and this seemed possibly to answer that question finally, Mm -hmm. which I'm glad of because again, I feel like, the series does feel like it needs to move forward and not just kind of repeat storylines. And a way to not do that is by allowing us to have these characters uh, basically be friends with us and be characters that, uh, you know, we can rely on and create um, bonds with. So I like that. And I think it felt earned enough Mm-hmm. Uh, here that we've kind of been waiting for that as a question here for the last couple of books and so I'm very interested actually to then see where that will progress in the next books you know does that stay this do they stay friends or you know do they decide to to turn on us yeah and so yeah that's really really interesting to me and I'm I'm just glad that they went in that direction. It seems um, kind of late, you know, we're in book four to to really start getting into some of this again because I feel like some of some of the stuff, obviously all of it started in book one. A little bit of it progressed in book two, and you know, when they actually got to Belter zero in book three. Yeah. And so like it yeah, it's nice to finally getting back be getting back to it and Mm-hmm. Whether or not the blood turn out to be friends or enemies, I just felt like this was a good good way to get them involved. And if it's a deception, you got us, you know. And if if they really are friends, then great. That's good that they've got a yeah. friend in this area. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. So, um, I, I wanted to ask you too because we still in this book, there's no follow up to what happened with Sun and his crew and their encounter with the blackness. Uh, that happened in Beltaire, book two. And so, I I don't know, how did you feel about that? Because I was pretty disappointed, actually, that we didn't get any kind of answers to that. I really thought that when McCoy, or, um, yeah, when McCoy and Scotty went out on their scout ship, mm-hmm. that they would have run into them or run into the blackness themselves and maybe even gotten captured or something, um to further that story because it just seemed, I mean, that's what Sun and his crew were doing. They were going out and scouting the area to find if there was more enemies or more enemy fleets or other planets or, you know, like I just, I guess it was really to find other planets, but um, 
that it felt like that's what they when 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 Scotty and McCoy were getting ready to go out on a scout ship to go scouting. I thought that that's what was going to happen. And when they didn't, and when they came back and kind of, kind of empty handed, as far as that like son's crew was concerned, I was actually very disappointed because again, here's something that they set up, um, you know, in the first couple books and now we haven't heard anything since. And I'm just like, this, you know, it's like, obviously they're setting up something. I, we really want to know what it is. And to this point, it feels like they've forgotten about it. Now, I know that something is going to happen from this, but to get nothing on it, I'm just like, by you know, you're expecting us after six books to remember, or, you know, four or five books even, to remember exactly what was going on at that point. Like, give us even some breadcrumbs to, like, just chew on, even in an epilogue or, a, you know, an interlude somewhere in the middle of the story just to remind us that something is still going on out there, that maybe there's a, an even bigger threat than the blood or clawed, you know, that we need to worry about. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I think that's a really great point in all honesty, um, because I thought exactly the same as you, that they were going to run into them <laughs> um, because, you know, they're searching other planets in the area again. And so it seemed a little bit strange that they didn't, um, and so I, I think I was kind of disappointed that we didn't utilize that as an opportunity. Yeah. So, um, and I hope that they will follow up the story, uh, because it, it seems strange to have planted that and then not do anything with it. Yeah. We planted that so. seed, and then we ended up with rough trails as book three. <laughs> right, right, exactly. Yeah, no, I mean a hundred percent. And so, well, I, Casey, I'm interested because it felt like this was a book that we responded a little bit better to. We might have had some quibbles with uh, here and there, but where do you come down with the ratings for the Flaming Arrow? Yeah, I ended up giving this one um, four out of five uh, planet-sized lasers, in air quotes, like Dr. S- Dr. Evil. Um, and I think I was fairly generous, partly because of the last book was a fair disappointment, I, I think. Um, and um, this one was just so much more engaging. It moved at a better pace. Um, the characterizations were okay um as i read it um what's funny is since we're watching strange new worlds i could i could every time spock spoke i heard ethan peck in my head but it was actually a pretty good thing for ethan peck because anytime i tried to make put leonard nimoy back in my head it kept transferring back into ethan peck and i was like okay that must mean that ethan peck is a pretty good spock for me but um yeah i mean there there were some issues with it for sure but um it was just a fun little romp, I guess, in this uh, new Earth world that we're in. And, um, you know, I, I, I want more like this, I guess. You know, more like book two, book four, um, not like book three. So, mm-hmm. um, I'm, I'm, this one leaves me a little bit more excited to get into the next one than I was left at, with at the end of mm-hmm. the previous book. So, yeah. How about you? Yeah, I think... 
I would go with three out of five. You know, I think this is a better book um, with uh, the just the storyline. I think it feels just better. Um, you know, I think that there is a lot. Um, it just it it felt less dour, you know, and I don't mind that necessarily in stories. And, and I thought that there was a place for that with that third book, specifically because of what had happened. But I'm just glad that we, we didn't stay in that malaise for too long. Mm-hmm. And, you know, again, this was book four. So we have two more books in this series. And I think you do want the story to progress, to move to a different place where you feel like these people are going to make it um, and that it will have been worthwhile to have been on the journey with them. And so, yeah, I would give it three out of five, you know, and um, I'm like you actually more excited now to read the last two books to see how this all wraps up. Agreed. Well, I'm glad that we both had uh, more enjoyment of that book than we did last time. But I have got to say, I'm excited to get back once again and to find out what's going on uh, with Trip and maybe more Hoshi next time. Uh, I guess we'll see. Uh, and the whatever happened to the Daedalus. I am right there with you. I think that's going to be a lot of fun. And I really enjoy being in, in the Enterprise series. So I can't wait. Um but, Casey, before we get there, where can everybody catch up with you if they want to see what else you've got going on? Yeah, you can find me on Goodreads, Letterboxd, Twitter, and Instagram at Knitting Trekkie. You can also find me lurking around on Facebook in the Babel Conference. And you can find me doing a podcast called Mickey's Marvels, where we talk about everything under the Disney umbrella. Awesome. And, of course, you can find me all over the place under the name MattRushing02 on social media. So Instagram, Letterboxd, Twitter, Vero, all those type of places. And you can also find me here on the network in many different shows. One of them is 602 Club, where we talk about all things not Star Trek here on the network, because there are all those fandoms we love. Uh, You can also find me doing Warp 5, The Orb, Saddle Up, and... The Artificial Tango. Warp 5 is about Star Trek Enterprise. The Orb is about Star Trek Deep Space Nine. Saddle Up is all about Star Trek Strange New Worlds. And then The Artificial Tango is about Star Trek Picard. And then uh, you can also find me over on the Nerd Party Network with two different shows. One is called Owl Post. I did that with Drea Kaufman, and we talked about every single chapter of the Harry Potter series, one chapter at a time. And then last but not least, I... I'm on aggressive negotiations with John Mills as we talk about Star Wars. But thank you so much for joining us. And until next time, live long and read on. You call that light reading? To each his own, number one.